Today we're going to be continuing in our series through the Gospel of John, which we've been working through verse by verse, uh, and we're coming to chapter 8, uh, and we'll, we'll break that down. We're going to go through half of the chapter. So let's, let's pray real quick, and uh, we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much uh, that you, you love us so, so, so much. You've forgiven us, Lord. You, you purchased us on the cross. God, every person here, um, you love deeply. Um, no matter what's going on in their life, you, you know it, but you love them. Um, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us what we each personally need to hear from this passage, Lord. It's actually a very heavy passage, a very deep passage. Um, so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach God. Give me the grace, the, the humility to teach this passage in a way that is, that is bold, but also loving. And, uh, Lord, teach us. We need you in this moment. Um, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you have been on Facebook or the news recently at all, uh, you probably saw that Kate Spade hung herself. She was a very popular um, fashion designer. Uh, I didn't know really about her stuff, but apparently people I know have her stuff. So apparently a lot of people do know um, who she is. And then uh, somebody I do know a lot more of because I've watched uh, pretty much all of his shows Anthony Bourdain hung himself as well. And it's kind of like a string of celebrities that have been hanging themselves recently. Um, and it's a really tragic and awful thing. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, and the reason I'm talking about it is, you know, you can achieve everything that you want, right? Even if it's not money, like both of these people had a lot of money. Um, so even if you're like, I'm not that concerned with money, it's like, well, they had fame. Uh, Anthony Bourdain had this underdog story. I mean, he started out kind of as this punk heroin addict um, who really had nothing going for his life, started working as a dishwasher at a kitchen, and from there worked his way to becoming one of the most influential voices in, in food and travel. I mean, maybe you don't care about money or fame, but maybe, maybe for you it's like, Nobody can tell me I can't do it, right? It's that mentality of like, I will achieve something. I will become great. I will do these things. You can have all the money, all the fame. You can have the underdog story that you're wanting. You can work hard, achieve all your goals, and still find yourself completely empty, right? And we're talking about another heavy subject. It's not suicide, but adultery. Um, and you know, like, we as humans are broken. We are hurting. We are looking for pleasure. We are looking for something more. And let me tell you right now, you're not going to find it anywhere else but Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, it doesn't matter if you succeed. It doesn't matter if you get the fame and the wealth that you want. It doesn't matter if you, you seek out pleasure in other places. You will feel empty. At the end of your life, you can feel very, very empty. We come to this story about this woman who's caught in the act of adultery, and she's thrown before Jesus. Um, and Jesus shows her a lot of compassion and love. And I think it's really important, and we're gonna we're gonna dive into that. Now, there's the immediate question: If you open up your Bibles to John eight chapter, or sorry, John eight verse one, you're gonna see in most of your Bibles a little text that says the earliest manuscripts don't include this, or the oldest, something like that. Okay. So you're probably immediately thinking, like, why uh, does it say that? So these first 12 verses, we're going to go through 1 through 30, but the first 12, the woman um, who's caught in adultery, uh, are not found in a couple of the oldest complete manuscripts that we have. 
And so there's some debate of whether or not this passage here was included. But what they won't tell you in that little script there is that the, in those two oldest complete ones that we have, there's actually a blank space for it, as if it was there and they took it out. Okay, uh, And some believe that there were some issues for scholars or maybe for some of the people in the early church that this passage was too lenient. Some believe that it's possible that it was removed later because they felt like it almost encouraged adultery. Like, hey, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. And so they removed it. And that is not, of course, what Jesus is t saying here by any means. Um, so it, I do believe that it is scripture, that it was in the original text, because we see quotes from uh, in the 300 AD era and then even some in the second century where the early church is quoting the story. They're referencing it in some of their lectures. And so if it, and these, so they, we have actually quotes that are older than the oldest manuscripts that are referencing this text. And so I do believe it was there, and in some of, some of them it was, it was removed. So I do believe that this is the word of God. So we're going to give it the reverence it deserves. Amen? John 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Okay. So the language suggests that like they had taken her from the act of adultery. Like It's not like, oh, this is a woman that's in the middle of a trial because of this. It's like they found it. They grabbed her and they dragged her to Jesus. That's what the language is suggesting. So she may be wrapped up in a sheet. She may be naked. We don't know. But either way, it's not like she was willingly following them. They dragged her here. The other question is the law said, according to Moses, that both would be stoned, the male and the female, the man and the woman if they were caught in adultery. So the obvious question, too, is where's the man? Why is she being dragged here and not the guy? Okay. Um, but this woman is caught in something that is awful. Let's not... Uh, let's not like gloss over the fact that she's done something horrible, something that ruins marriages, something that ruins families, something that um, is just an awful thing to do, which is to commit adultery. And so they drag her there. They bring her. Jesus is in the middle of teaching, right? So like sometimes during a sermon, like, you know, a baby cries or something like that. That's pretty normal, right? That's a normal distraction in a sermon. Uh, can you imagine like Jesus is teaching some sermon and they just drag in this woman and like throw her to the ground in front of him and being like, hey, let's stone her. What an interruption to a sermon. Like, please don't ever do that. <laughs> some of you are like, oh, man, okay, I was going to do that next week. That's not a funny joke, I guess. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's talk about infidelity. Sound good? You guys excited to talk about infidelity? Uh, it is a huge problem in our society, in all societies, in all cultures that has been. In America, these are some of the more recent stats that I found. In over one-third of marriages, one or both partners admit to cheating. 22% of men 
say that they have cheated on their significant other. 14% of women admit to cheating on their significant other. 36% of men and women admit to having an affair with a coworker. 17% of men and women admit to having an affair with a sister-in-law or brother-in-law. People who have cheated before are 350% more likely to cheat again. Affairs are most likely to occur during the first two years of a marriage. 35% of men and women admit to cheating while on a business trip. And there's, there's more. 40% of online affairs turn into real affairs. Do you guys remember Ashley Madison, that whole scandal? Do you know how many users there were on that? 37 million accounts. Now, some of them were fake accounts. It's hard to determine the exact number of real users. 37 million accounts on Ashley Madison. There's only 60 million married men in America. It's a lot of people on that website. And you know what's even crazier? It had this huge breach where a bunch of people got busted. You could like Google somebody's name and see if they were on there. Um, after that huge breach, it's still growing, the website. Now they're, they're, again, many of them are possibly fake, but closer to 54 million accounts on Ashley, Ashley Madison. Infidelity is a huge problem. And what this woman has done is wrong. It's awful, isn't it? However, Jesus is not scared of our sin. There's no sin too great for Jesus to forgive, too awful for Jesus to forgive. There's nothing that you can do that gets you beyond the love and grace of Jesus. Let's continue reading verse 6. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is out with sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So what's interesting is it says that they did this to test him because it was kind of a no-win situation for, for Jesus. Um, for the Pharisees and these, these scribes, they would have liked to have seen Jesus throw the stone. However, Rome had taken away from the Jews the right um, to practice capital punishment. So they could attend to other affairs and enforce other punishments, but they could not give somebody the death penalty any longer without going through the Roman court. So Jesus has this kind of weird issue where he has to say, are we going to follow the law of Moses here? Are we going to follow the law of Rome? Are you going to listen to what the scribes and Pharisees want? Or are you going to listen to what the people want who are against capital punishment for a lot of these things? So Jesus kind of is in this situation where they're trying to get Jesus in a, in a place where there's almost no right answer in the moment. And so they want him to, to make a mistake. They want to show that Jesus isn't all that great. Any way that he chooses here, they probably had a good argument against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, everyone likes to speculate about what he wrote down on the ground. We would all love to know. Right? Because whatever he writes on the ground makes these guys second uh, guess themselves. It makes them rethink the situation. Some have said that maybe he started write, writing down their names and sins. Maybe he was just writing down the Ten Commandments and saying, have you broken any of these? We don't know exactly what Jesus wrote down, but it does make them think. 
Then Jesus says to them, let, you know, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, verse 8, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So the language suggests that it was those accusers that left one by one, oldest to youngest. But there was still the crowd there. She was still in this moment of shame before a very large crowd, possibly thousands. Now, of course, the older, the younger, uh, it's interesting. Uh, the older ones probably are more aware of their sin than the younger ones, probably a little less self-righteous. They leave first. Maybe it's that Jesus was writing down their sins and he just started with the oldest one there. <laughs> it's possible that too. Um, but they all leave, and then it's just the woman standing before him. Jesus, in verse 10, says, um, or Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So Jesus is left there with this woman. And Jesus is the only one, according to what Jesus stated, let you, uh, those who are without sin, throw the first stone. He could throw the stone. He could throw the stone. Right? It's interesting. Jesus is standing here, the only one, according to him, who has the right to stone her, to take her life. And instead, he shows her love. He shows her grace. And he says, has no one condemned you? She said, no. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Go and sin no more. What will be the point for you where maybe there's something in your life that you can't seem to beat where you'll really go and sin no more? Where's that breaking point going to finally be? I, I've been curious, like, did she go and sin no more? I believe she probably did. I, I believe that she was probably compelled by the love of Jesus to truly transform her life. But sometimes I wonder, did she? Like, if you were in this situation, would you? Like, what does it take for us to really turn from some of those things that have been there forever that you said over and over again, it'll never happen again? What will it take? Where is the point where you say never again? Where is the point where it's actually the last time? Because Jesus shows her grace. He says, I don't condemn you. But then he also charges her, doesn't he? He says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. When it comes to sin in our life, God wants us to confess it to him. He wants us to confess it to those we're close to for accountability and so that we may be healed. This is what the Bible teaches about it. Are you going to wait until you're caught in the act to make a change? Or are you going to make a change now? Who would want to be in her position where you're cast to the ground in front of thousands of people and accused of something horrible? Verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus turns this into a teaching moment for the crowd. I am the light of life. If you walk in darkness, this is what happens. Your sin catches up to you. The Bible says multiple places that God brings what is in the darkness to light. He shines light on darkness. So if we want to follow Jesus, we walk out of that darkness and we begin to walk in the light. Amen? Let's keep reading. Jesus is going to begin to have this debate, in a sense, with the Pharisees over his right to do these things and teach these things. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So they're saying, well, you're kind of saying this is just on your own reputation, just as yourself. You can't make these kind of rules. You can't judge just by yourself, and, and, and you're only one person. And Jesus then calls upon his identity as the Son of God and says that him and the Father are one in these judgments. Him and the Father are one in, in mind, really. And he's saying, my testimony is true, one, because I say it, but second, if you need a second witness, God, the Father, is the second witness. We are aligned. And if you know the Father, you would know me. And if you know me, you know the Father. This is something that Jesus often addresses about his identity. And they often miss it. They don't get what he's getting at. And to verse 21, so he said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I think Jesus is trying to make it more and more clear what he's talking about here. That he has a heavenly will, that he's in connection to the heavenly Father, and that one day he is going away and they will die in their sins. And where I'm going, you cannot come. It is a heavy statement to say to them that you will die in your sins, and he's going to heaven, and he says, where I'm going, you can't come. He didn't say that to the woman caught in adultery, did he? He said that to the ones who are rejecting him, 
who are rejecting his identity as the Son of God. He says, you will die in your sin, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. <laughs> That's the third time he says it, right? He wants to make the point clear. Now, interesting here where it says, I am he. There's no he there. We put it in English to make the sentence make more sense. He is saying that I am. This is the same statement when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And God speaks from the bush and says, I am. Like, I am God, the only God, me, I am. So Jesus here, he's not saying I am he. He's saying that I am the I am. And I am telling you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am the I am. If you do not believe that Jesus is divine, there is no salvation. You will die in your sins. Jesus makes this really clear. But they don't get it. Again, verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. <laughs> I love Jesus. Like, people love Jesus because, like, he was loving, like, because he was uh, a servant, because he was humble. Sometimes I like Jesus because he's a smart aleck, right? Like, he's got an attitude sometimes. He's got this blunt way of speaking, and I love it. It's like, I've been telling you since the beginning. What do you mean, who are you? I have much to say about you um, and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Again, it's I am there. There's no he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he was saying these things. Many believed in him. So he, he readdresses it and says, I am. I am connected to the Father. I am divine. I am the one who spoke to Moses. I am the one who has been providing for Israel. I am the eternal Son of God. Jesus keeps making it clear. And then he says the main sign of his identity is that when he is lifted up, that you'll know that I am. Jesus says here that they will know, he's speaking to those who believe, that the number one thing about Jesus' identity was the cross. When he was lifted up, Jesus proved who he was, that he could take on the sin of the world so that all could have forgiveness, so that all could receive the grace of God. This is what he came to do. He's trying so hard to make it clear to these hard-headed Jewish leaders. They're not getting it. But it says that many believed in him. As I've been thinking about this passage of this 
woman caught in adultery and cast before Jesus. And I've heard this passage taught many times. It is used often in sermons. Like often people will turn um, people to this passage and we love to point out how these guys are in the wrong. Like these accusers, they're in the wrong. And we, we oftentimes see Jesus is about love and grace and mercy. But then I, you know, what? I look at our culture and we love to take people who are caught in evil things and just make a big show of it. Don't we? We love to judge. We love it. Like as we're reading the story and we're judging the judges for being judgmental while we do the same exact thing when people get in their own scandals and their own affairs, when they're caught in their own garbage, we love to go, see, did you hear what happened? Oh, if it's a celebrity, we love it even more, don't we? Like, can we talk about it and post about it and lecture everyone about how we know everything about suicide and we were a genius all along? Like, and lecture Facebook people about how to treat it? We love to talk about the darkness. We love to talk about things and, and, and use it as an opportunity to, to either show how educated we are or to show how much we know about the subject. Or just simply, maybe we enjoy to see others get caught in their stuff. I think we're a lot more like these Pharisees than we want to admit. And a lot less like Jesus. A lot less like Jesus than we, than we think we are. Now, Jesus does make it really clear that what she did was wrong. And that she needed to repent. That she needed to turn. But he also made it really clear to these men that they were also sinners. But they also had huge issues in their life. And they didn't have the right to cast stones at her. And Jesus did have that right. Listen, the Bible says that every sin is deserving of death. Not just her sin. Every one of your sins separates you from God, and the punishment for it is death. And Jesus has the right, as the I am, to stone you. So who are you to judge? Who are we to judge and celebrate almost when others are caught in theirs? What if it was you who was cast down naked in front of a crowd of people and all of your dirtiest moments aired before everyone. Can we have a little more humility, church? Can we have a little more humility and say that we too are sinners? Because every sin is deserving of death because we serve a holy and righteous God and he hates sin. But listen, that is what makes the cross beautiful. That's what makes the cross so beautiful. Listen, we can't just talk about how nice of a guy Jesus was, how wise he was. Because he talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. He talked about sin bluntly. He made it clear that we all had some serious issues. 
Yet Jesus died for every single one of us, and he took the penalty of our sin. That is why the cross is the greatest sign of who Jesus was. Because when you see the Son of Man, it's a reference to the Messiah, the Son of Man lifted up, then you'll know, I am. Seventy percent of the users on Ashley Madison identified as either evangelical, Protestant, or Catholic. Seventy percent. They did a study on it. Seventy percent of the users of Ashley Madison identified themselves as some form of Christian. Of, of Christian. We need to have a point in our life where we say, I'm done. I am really repenting. And move on. Move on in the grace that Jesus has for you. Obviously, lots of people take the name Christian and don't actually believe or don't actually want to repent. And Jesus said that he was, you know, our Lord and Savior. Over and over again, it says that if we believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, right? It's easy to take the Savior part of Jesus and run with it. Man, he saved me. That's so great. But now that means he's Lord. He's to be the Lord of your life. And we all struggle with that part, don't we? We all struggle with that. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. But I'll manage my life from here. I'll read your word when I need you to bless me or fix a situation in my life. When things are tough, I'll turn to you. But that's not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants us to treat him as Lord. What does the word Lord mean? It means boss. It means manager. It means master. It means one in control of your life. It means the one that you give respect, that you listen to, that you obey. That's what Lord is. So when you go and pray and you say, Lord Jesus, we better mean it. That he is our Lord. Because he purchased you with his blood. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you have received the free gift of salvation, he purchased you. That's what he accomplished on the cross. He purchased you. He took your penalty. He took your punishment. He took the debt that you owed. And he paid it himself. And by doing so, he purchased you, which means he is your Lord. Can we serve him like he's Lord? Or are we going to be the type who maybe you are caught red-handed, but then you just keep going back? The gospel is such, such good news. And I think the church today loves to just take advantage of grace. We love 
um, maybe unintentionally or, 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 or subconsciously to just go, man, that grace message is so good. And so I can, I can, I can always just go back whenever I feel like it. I'll, but right now, I'll just do my thing. And we, we abuse grace. And you know, Paul, the apostle, would often say that, you know, Jesus, he, he took all of our sin and, and all of our punishment. And so he says, is the argument so that we could just go sin more? And he, he said, oh, by no means. That's not what grace is. It's not so that you can abuse it. It's not so that you can just keep doing your thing and keep receiving forgiveness. It's so that your life would be transformed, so that you would leave that moment of shame and move on as a child of God into a new life, as a new creation. Listen to this verse. We had uh, last week read 2 Corinthians 5, and I just we're going to pick right back up where we left, 6.1. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul says to them, we appeal to you. The verses above it was that Christ who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And he says, I appeal to you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. I beg it of you. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to move on. So today let's... Get our hearts right with Jesus. Whatever sin it may be, don't wait till it's brought to light in a shameful way. Get your heart right with Jesus. If you're struggling with things, we love you. We want to be there for you. We are all sinners. And we want to show all people grace, love, and mercy. But we want to also help you move on recognizing the lordship of Jesus, not abusing the grace, not using it in vain, but moving forward with our lives. Who's with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this very heavy text, God. Lord, you don't take our sin lightly. You don't take it lightly at all. Lord, I pray that we would be convicted by the Holy Spirit today. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be closing up our hearts, but instead allowing your Holy Spirit to convict us of the things that we know are there and shouldn't be there. Lord, also there are times where we are blind to things. There are times where we have justified them so well in our mind that we think we're all right. Lord Jesus, you died for every single one of our sins. You simply ask us to turn to you. Lord, I pray if, if there are any in here who have yet to really commit to you, who maybe like the idea of a nice Jesus, who like the idea of the easy gospel, but aren't ready to submit to your lordship, Lord, I pray that you would, you would transform their hearts right now 
to turn to your love, to turn to your grace, to turn to your lordship, to surrender everything to you because you're worthy, because you purchased us with your blood, because finding our new identity in you is the best possible identity we could ever have. It doesn't matter if we, we, we work hard and reach um, all of our goals, Lord. If we don't have you, we have nothing. If we don't have you, we will die in our sins. But you are the great I am. And just how you promised Moses that because you were the I am, you would bring salvation to the people. So you promise us here as a church that if we believe that you are the I am, that you were lifted up on that cross, that you took our penalty for sin. But if we believe that message, we are set free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.